Stay hungry, stay foolish. The way we work is broken. It takes forever to get anything done. Meetings and emails are incessant. Bureaucracy stifles talent and creativity. Is this really the best we can do? Aaron Dignan teaches companies how to eliminate red tape, tap into collective intelligence, and rethink long-held traditions that no longer make sense. In his book, Brave New Work, he shows you how to revolutionize the way you, your team, and your company works forever. Have fewer but better meetings. Create a culture of honesty, transparency, and trust. Cut down on rules to be far more efficient. Be more agile and adaptive. Reignite passion and energy throughout your organization. We welcome author of Brave New Work. Are you ready to reinvent your organization? Aaron Dignan, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the show, Aaron. I thought this would be a great way to open today's show with a quote from the book, which goes like this. We don't have enough time, but we pack our days with endless meetings. We don't have the information we need, but we are buried in emails, documents, and data. We want speed and innovation, but we run from risks and inhibit our best people. We claim to work in teams, but we don't really trust each other. We know the way we are working isn't working, but we can't imagine an alternative. We long for change, but we don't know how to get it. I loved that quote from the book because it really tees up the challenge of the working world we're living in today. I felt like I could have kept going so many uh, this but that's that it uh, became quite lyrical. <laughs> but no, it's true. I mean, I, I find that everywhere I go in the world, teams are kind of in the same boat, regardless of culture or industry, which is, you know, many of the things we want, we really can't seem to have because we all work like we're still on a factory floor in the 1900s. Aaron, I loved the point you landed when you spoke of World War II's William J. Donovan and his simple sabotage field manual. I'm going to read the list here a little bit, and I'd love for you to elaborate. Number one, insist on doing everything through channels. Never permit shortcuts to be taken in order to expedite decisions. Make speeches. Talk as frequently as possible and at great length. Illustrate your points by long anecdotes and accounts of personal experiences. <laughs> Number three. When possible, refer all matters to committees for further study and consideration. Attempt to make the committees as large as possible, never less than five. <laughs> Number four, bring up irrelevant issues as frequently as possible. Number five, haggle over the precise wordings of communications, minutes, and resolutions. It goes on and on. There's 12 points here. And I thought you really landed the point of how inefficient we are in the workplace. What's weird about the list and the way I present it to audiences is I just share the, the instructions without saying what they're from and ask people where they think they originated. And for those that have not heard of this before, they immediately go to like, you obviously got that from current day businesses. Like you've been running around studying big systems and that's how they act. So that's where you got it. And when I tell them that it's a human lifetime ago that they were written and that they were written as a way to sabotage a company, people's eyes really open up because they start to realize like the way we work today is not the way we always worked. And it's not something that our, you know, parents and grandparents anticipated as the logical conclusion to basic bureaucracy. Um, it's metastasized into something far, far worse. And we're basically behaving as if we want to sabotage our own companies. And so there's a huge delta there between the intent of operating a business in a way that has some measure of effectiveness and efficiency and what we've what we've landed on. You do this brilliant job of teeing up all the issues we have and then move to solutions. But let's stay on some of the issues at the moment. So you show an image of an org chart. And you don't again refer to when this is from and then you reveal that it's an org chart from a 1910 railway. And again, it's exactly the same as the org charts are today. And you use this as a way to show where org charts came from, the origin of them, and the fact that we're still living with the echoes of the past. A hundred percent, yeah. The funny thing about the org chart is, had I shown you a picture of anything else, you'd be able to carbon date it better. But we look at this instrument by which we visualize all of human effort, and people have no idea when it's from. And now most audiences kind of know my my bit. And, and the, the main joke is like, it's from yesterday, it's from tomorrow. 
like it you know it's 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 so present and my favorite thing about that particular org chart the 1910 one is that it already has dotted lines on it which is just beautiful so they were screwed before they even began <laughs> and another metaphor you use is the one of the operating system and your comparison to traffic lights i love this as well i'd love if you took our audience through this as you start to embark into this you know new ways of working space the the challenge becomes how do you explain to people what's the trade they're making because most people think of work as a continuum between chaos on one end where the startup lives we don't know anything we don't have any constraints um, we're figuring it out around the table and bureaucracy on the other end which is where the end-ups live and it's you know we're over constrained and there's red tape on everything and nobody can do anything and so we're inflexible and we're wishing and longing for that flexibility and that responsiveness and both sides look at the other side and they're like i don't want to be that right so the startup doesn't want to end up as a bureaucracy and the bureaucracy is like hey i've got a hundred thousand people we can't figure this out around a kitchen table anymore so that's not an option for me and what's funny is that there's actually a third way there's a there's a third way that's off that continuum which is having a different kind of constraints the right constraints that we call enabling constraints and so the difference is uh illustrated in this idea of the intersection so two roads cross the problem space there is we have to make sure that the cars don't hit each other and that we maximize the throughput how many cars get through per hour and so you can take different approaches and i use these different approaches as as sort of a um example of an operating system. So we think of an OS as a set of assumptions and principles and practices. And so if you look at the intersection, you say, all right, well, let's take the lighted intersection first. So the red, yellow, green light and the arrows and all the poles and all that, you know, what are the assumptions about people in the problem there? And the basic assumptions about people in the problem there are they need to be told what to do. And so we will tell everyone what to do with lights and signals and they will comply. Their job is to do as they're told and that'll work. And by the way, it works fine. I've, you know, been driving for a couple decades plus and uh, nothing, you know, nothing that bad has ever happened. I've been maybe one accident, but for the most part, I get through those things every day. Um, the other system, the roundabout, same problem space, different solution, different operating system, different assumptions about people and the problem. And the assumptions in the roundabout are basically they'll figure it out. So they'll figure it out in the sense that we don't need to over-constrain them with thinking of every possible scenario. We're just going to have a couple simple rules that are um, guidelines that they can use that they can almost use judgment within to decide how to approach this space. And so those, those simple rules are, you know, go with the flow of traffic and give the right-of-way to people in the roundabout. And what's interesting about that is, you know, well, how much right-of-way? You know, do I... Do I enter with six inches of margin? Do I wait till the roundabout is empty? Is it one lane? Is it two lanes? You know, often there's a lot of flexibility in how I show up to that uh, to that system. And what's funny is, you know, we we look at the performance of these two two approaches. One very much based on compliance and control. One very much based on trust and autonomy within a framework. And the roundabout has higher throughput and better safety, dramatically better safety. Um, it's cheaper to build and maintain and works better when the power goes out. And yet we have over a thousand times more lighted intersections in the U.S. at least than we do roundabouts. And the reason for that, I think, uh, there are many, I'm sure, but the reason that I like is um, we feel more comfortable in those systems. You know, we feel like we're, we're safer in some way, even though we're not. And that's because when we're in the roundabout, we're in a system that is safe because of social coordination because of us being present together in the problem together and in the light when we're not on when we're not being told to go when we're being told to stop we can just check out and so it's a very different feeling to be in a roundabout than it is to be in a lighted intersection and the difference is the trade-off is yeah you can check out when you're at the light and it's red but the absolute performance of that system is lower and so there's a really interesting dynamic there. And, and what I often leave audiences with is this idea that I'm not here to say that everything should be a roundabout because there are so many contexts where a roundabout doesn't make sense, like the entirety of Manhattan with one exception. Um, but uh, there are a lot, a lot, a lot of situations where it does make sense and we're not even considering it. And so my point to people is let's be deliberate. When we look at a process or a rule or a principle or a way of working or a way of structuring our teams, let's just check in and be like, wait a second, is the way we're doing it serving us well? Is it aligned with our principles? Is it aligned with our assumptions about people and the problem? 
Um, and as a result, then, is it something we've actually chosen rather than something that we've inherited? Because I would argue that 95% of the work environment we all live in is completely inherited and often thoughtlessly. And let's talk about that because you give us a real understanding of the past so we can explore the future. And you give us the history of the organization with Frederick Winslow Taylor. I'd love if you took our audience through this. Yeah, so I actually am staring right now outside of this uh, podcast booth at his book, The Principles of Scientific Management from 1910, roughly 1911, I believe. And this was the first kind of uh, nonfiction management bestseller. This was a time when we were industrializing uh, extensively, and the questions we were sitting with were questions of consistency and scale, right? The first national brands, the first kind of scaled businesses where we were really thinking about how do I make, you know, 30,000 pairs of boots for the Napoleonic Wars or something like that. And the, of course, when you're facing a, facing a problem like that, the old model of master and apprentice doesn't really help you solve that because the, you know, the master can make one pair of shoes a day. And if you put a whole bunch of masters in a factory together, they can still make one pair of shoes each per day. <laughs> so you haven't done anything to change the, the productivity of that group. So what folks like Taylor did, and he had a lot of contemporaries and a lot of help, was they said, you know, there is one best way to do everything, right? I mean, this is literally a man who measured, like, how many pounds of coal should be in each shovel full of coal when you're, you know, <laughs> filling the boiler. So there's one best way. And so what we need to do is figure that out. And then we need to get everybody to do that at the same time and in the same way. So this was stopwatch management, literally. This was people walking around the floor and being like, all right, you need to do 50 pieces an hour because that's the quota. Um, you need to move your elbow this way. If we rearrange the factory floor that way, we'll get a, we'll get a gain. Um, when you think about Ford's kind of assembly line, that innovation that most people have heard about, um, the assembly line is an example of this kind of thinking. And by the way, um, it worked great. Like the, you know, these, these sort of approaches to improving our productivity did exactly that. I think it cut the time uh, to produce a car down by like 12 times, like something ridiculous like that. Like it was, it was a real revolution and people began to become quite enamored with it. And so this idea of scientific management um, was born. The problem was that it also then gave birth to a class of people whose job it was to do that thinking. So if the, if the craftsmen and the artisans were meant to be told um, the one best way or, or even to help collaborate on finding it, but then to comply with it, then this new class of managers had to be born to enforce that and to observe that and to study, to look for better ways beyond that. And so it, we became a two-tiered uh, kind of system in a way that over the last 100 years has really gotten out of control to the point where now it's sort of an assumption that managers do the thinking and you know employees do the doing. <laughs> um, and that goes all the way up the chain to the top. And so often when I'll ask people something like, who can decide? Everybody just points up because we're so used to that dynamic. So I think even Taylor himself, who was actually, uh, you know, not, not quite the devil we make him out to be, um, although, you know, he did, he certainly did some things that have affected us negatively as well. Um, even he, I think, would walk into a modern business today and be like, what the hell are you doing? Like, this is actually not <laughs> efficient. Even though you're practicing the principles of, you know, the one best way, you've actually made it the one worst way because you have 15 people making a decision and you have all these paperwork in triplicate and you have all these ways to slow yourself down. So I think, I think even Taylor would be disgusted with the modern way of work. As you say, that's a Faustian pact we entered into. We gave up our autonomy and we were paid handsomely for it, but it's counter to the human spirit of solving problems. Taylor literally bribed people to give up their way of doing something. So he'd say, yeah, you know, I'll pay you 30% more this month if you do this, you know, steel work my way. And then at the end of the month, you can decide. You can go back to your way at your wage, or you can do it my way at this higher wage. And so literally people were bribed out of their autonomy. And we're still living with it with so many things in the world today, and it needs reinvention, which is what we're going to get into soon. You mentioned there about how inefficient we are, and we mentioned the Journal of Sabotage. But there's a term you introduce about bureaucracy here. I'm sure many listeners will identify with from their organizations, which is organizational debt. Yeah, org debt is one of my favorite things to talk about because there's so much of it. Most people understand financial debt where you owe money and pay interest on it or technical debt if they work in software. Org debt is basically just all the processes and policies and rules and structures and norms within the organization that we 
find are no longer serving us that are getting in the way, but that we haven't changed. We haven't updated, we haven't deleted, we haven't removed or refactored. And so, you know, that organizational debt is quite crushing. And when you look at people and ask them about their frustration and what's holding them back from doing their best work, they point to org debt. And what is amazing and mind-blowing about this is when you actually study it, there's a professor in our space by the name of Gary Hamill who has evaluated the scale of this. And it's like $3 trillion annually in the U.S. alone. It's like $9 trillion globally. So there's just a massive amount of wasted compliance behavior and management that is fundamentally not needed and is just in the way. And we just kind of live with it. And it's funny because most of us don't know who owns it because it was created before we came. And so my favorite example of this is I had a client who had a meeting that was quite costly that I got in the book. And when you go around and ask people that are attending it, they're like, yeah, we don't get a lot of value out of this. So then you ask the leader, well, you know, do you get a lot of value out of this? Well, not really. And it was here before I got here. It was something my predecessor was doing. So you track down the predecessor, the former leader, and you ask about the meeting. And they're like, oh, yeah, that's not mine. That came from the leader before me. And man, I mean, it goes back in time. And you're like, wow, some of this shit is 10 or 20 years old. And the person that built it is retired. <laughs> and we're not questioning it. And so I think just that, that act of like checking in as a team and being like, hey, is this serving us? That is the first step to eliminating org debt. One last trend we might explore before we move on to some solutions is a metric that we don't hear enough about and that you raise strongly in the book, which is ROA, return on assets. Yeah, so return on assets is an interesting one where it's pretty easy to game a lot of our metrics, right? In, including things like, you know, what the stock market is doing, et cetera. Like there's a lot of non-rational influence in those systems. But when you look at return on assets, that's just how much profit are we making for the stuff that we own? And the wild thing is at the same time as we've seen corporate lifespan go down, at the same time as we've seen these persistent things around simple sabotage, around the org chart, et cetera, ROA has been plummeting down and to the right. And so we actually see that we're just making less with more with what we have. We're not doing more with less, we're doing less with more. And that's why you see so much M&A and behavior about scaling and taking over industries and focusing on monopoly because we're just not able to squeeze as much juice out of the orange as we used to be able to. So again, that's just an example of that org debt in action. So you tell us also about Douglas McGregor's Theory X and Theory Y and how Theory X still dominates. Yeah, so Theory X and Theory Y is a theory about human behavior, which is what do you believe to be true about humans? And what McGregor would often do is put it to you or to the crowd, hey, you know, who are you, right? Are you this Theory Y type person that is self-directed and wants to learn and grow and wants to take responsibility and wants to do important work and all that? Um, or are you more of a Theory X person who's lazy and needs to be motivated and told what to do and dealt with with carrots and sticks and all this? And of course, everybody always says, oh, I'm, I'm a Theory Y person. Like, I'm, I'm definitely self-motivated. I want to self-actualize. I want to become, you know, whatever, whatever the best version of myself is. And I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure that out. I may not be perfect, but I'm, I'm in pursuit, right? I'm, I'm in it to, to win it, so to speak. Um, and then, and then he's like, oh, okay, interesting. And what about the people, you know, at your grocery store or in your office or at the corner, you know, gas pump, what are they like? And often people are like, oh, the, you know, those people are theory X. Like the, the, those people are not worth, you know, not worthy of trust and they're lazy and they need to be told what to do. And so there's this weird dichotomy in a lot of our heads about how we evaluate our own experience and then how we evaluate, you know, the nature of the other people around us. And it's often really easy to, um, to read people simply and say, oh, you know, this person that came in late, they must be lazy, as opposed to looking at it from the perspective of like, what is the whole operating system doing to encourage or, or enable that behavior? Um, and what is the actual nature of that person? And so this debate, of course, plays out in how we design systems. So you can spot a Theory X organization as soon as you see something that is not trusting people to be an adult. So like, you know, a, a factory that has a punch card for checking in and checking out with my time so that I, you know, down to the minute, you know, when I was here to work and when I was gone. That just says, look, we literally don't trust you to work a full day. We don't trust you to to deliver the value that you've said you've you know committed to deliver. And you know the same thing goes for all the other policies that exist to kind of scrutinize our behavior, the bathroom passes, all that stuff. Which, by the way, starts in school. School is a totally theory X environment, right? 
It's like grade driven. It's bathroom passes. It's you have to be where we tell you to be when we tell you to be it. And this is your desk. And this is the work you're going to do. It's completely based on the assumption that we're lazy idiots and that we need to be molded into something else. There's a huge dichotomy there. And then when you look at companies that are theory why, it's completely different. They're, they're much more open ecologies and common spaces where it's like, yeah, well, you know, we'll, we'll rise to the occasion. People will do the right thing. That's the fight. That's the battle that we're having right now is, you know, who are we? What is our true nature? And what does that mean about how we design our organizations? And this is a shift from the traffic light theory X to the roundabout theory Y. And one of the great hero stories you give early on in the book of an evolutionary organization is Joe de Bloch's Burtzorg. Yeah, yeah. Burtzorg is awesome. Joost de Bloch is this former practicing nurse. In the Netherlands, they do a lot of home health care, home nursing. And he just felt like the category was completely overrun with number crunchers and suits, essentially, who are trying to manage it into perfection and find that one best way by timing everything, right? How many minutes did you spend with the patient before you left? And how many milliliters did you administer? And so everything had become very mechanical. And he felt like, and I think still feels like it's a calling. It's an important human tradition to caretake. And so we should treat it differently. So he started a nursing organization called Bertzorg in the Netherlands that was going to be different. And basically the way it works is every team of roughly 10 to 12 nurses is a community team and they are completely self-managing. So they make their own decisions about who they serve and how and when and how long they stay and all that. And they do some very counterintuitive things like the first visit with a new patient will be them sitting down and having coffee together and just talking maybe for an hour, maybe for two hours about, you know, what's your support system? Who lives nearby? What do you need? What are you thinking? What does autonomy mean to you? How do you want to kind of get your health back? What can I do to help? There's a huge connection point there and context building. Um, and what's wild is this very self-directed system now is like 15 or 16,000 nurses. They're supported by what I think is still roughly 50 people in the head office. So you want to talk about lean and, uh, you know, lean at the top, um, or in their case, the center, uh, you know, 50 people supporting 15,000 in the field is, is incredibly efficient. And they're incredibly effective. You know, when you look at some of the studies that have been done about their health outcomes, they are as good or better as the traditional system, in many cases better. And so it saves the Dutch healthcare system an enormous amount of money every year to have Burt's organ existence. And a lot of other organizations that are based on care and community focused services are now looking to them and mimicking them with their help to do the, this model this way. Taylor would have a heart attack, man, if you saw this going <laughs> on. <laughs> he would, because I think in some ways, the misconception that everything is a complicated system is what drives that attitude. So I talk in the book about complicated versus complex, and complicated systems are somewhat predictable cause and effect systems, like a watch or an engine. And if that's the case, of course, there is one best way. There is one solution to a broken timing belt, right? These things are connected in a way where you can actually find a root cause and you can fix it. And so that model of kind of stopwatch management works really well when you're fine tuning an engine. Um, but when you're dealing with a garden or traffic or weather or a six-year-old, a complex system, um, that doesn't actually work best, right? And so if I try to treat a network of 15,000 nurses inside the homes of Dutch citizens as a wristwatch and find the one best way to serve them, it'll actually backfire. But if I actually let them be connected to community and locally deciding what's best, then it actually functions great. And nobody goes into a garden and tries to fix a garden, right? You have to nurture it. You have to be in relationship with it and to it. And so I think that's the, that's the big leap here is we're not saying that um, Taylor was wrong at flat, flat out. We're saying, know your system, right? Are you trying to optimize the way an engine works? Are you trying to optimize a line that's producing cornflakes? Um, and even there, by the way, Toyota has figured out a lot of ways to bring some humanity and some complexity thinking back to production. But in any case, are you trying to optimize you know, how we produce cornflakes? Or are you trying to create software people want to use? Are you trying to board an airplane? Are you trying to get nurses out in the system making people healthy again. I mean, I can't think of anything more complex than how to make a million people healthy again who are unhealthy. Like how many variables, how many different influences and inputs and relationships are present in that equation 
that can't be modeled. You can't have a checklist for how to make a million different people healthy again. That has to be done on the ground. I loved something you call out here because I encountered this the whole time in my own day job, call it of organizational development, is that many people go, ah, that would never work for my organization nor for me. And you remind us here of the Fosbury flop, a story that I love. <laughs> yeah, my favorite rebuttal is, you know, this is great for everybody else, but it's not for us because we're a snowflake. And while that might be true, by the way, you know, one of the things about being aware of complexity is I have to always be humble to the fact that like, I don't know, you know, maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe you're the exception. But what I love about that story is it highlights what is more often the case, which is, you know, here comes a guy who decides to do the high jump differently because some things had changed. They now had pads on the other side of the pole. And that was not the case when, when the high jump was first brought into competition. So you had to land on your feet for a long time. And then suddenly you could choose not to. And most people didn't because that was the norm and the status quo. But Dick Fosbury decided to go over backwards and head first and everybody told him not to. And there's the whole story about innovation there that I'm less interested in. But after he won the 1968 Olympics and got the gold medal and broke the Olympic world record for high jump, the funny thing is how everyone else reacted. And the way everyone else reacted is they said, oh, you know what? Congrats to Dick. It works for him, but it won't work for us, right? <laughs> it's, it's so nice that he's figured out this new way that works for him, but God love him, the weirdo. But, uh, but it's not going to be for us because we're, we're different. We're, you know, our physiology is different or whatever. There was always an excuse. But then shortly thereafter, a few years pass, and then suddenly nobody wins the high jump without his method, right? For, and I think to this day, only one person has held the world record that did it anyway other than the flop. And so there's this weird liminal space that we sit in. There's this weird in-between where we start to see what's possible with some vanguard organizations. And by the way, in our case, that space has been a long time coming. Like this has been going on since the 60s and 70s in some cases. Some of these groups are, you know, have been doing this for literal decades. But we're still in that moment of just like it's first being proven and not really being talked about. And then I think, you know, shortly thereafter, it's going to be like, oh, well, it's not for us. And then shortly after that, we'll start to realize, well, if you want to survive and thrive in complexity, it kind of is for you. And it's time to get hip to that. So I, I, you know, I always invite teams, don't listen to me, don't take my word for it. Just try something, try a new way of working, try changing, you know, some of the ways that you show up, try some of these principles. And if it doesn't work for you, you can check it off and maybe come back to it in, in a few years and try again. But if it does start to work, if it does add value, if there are people in your organization saying, hey, there is something stopping us from doing the best work of our lives and it is fixable, then why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you fix it? Why wouldn't you consider these possibilities and trade an old way for a new way? We're starting to see some edge behaviors here. We're starting to see some pioneers of change. Some people are well ahead of the game, as you said, but you know, the, the challenge is the pioneers take the arrows and oftentimes... <laughs> good, well-intentioned leaders who try to make these change get ousted or ostracized by the boards that they serve because it's all the world of short-termism oh, totally. and they just don't understand it. They're Fosbury flopping all over the place, but nobody's seeing the value of it because it's long-term change. Well, that's why it's brave new work and not uh, easy new work. And you do this in the book, and I want to say this to anybody who does get a copy of the book, you call out how to approach this at the, like you get de dedicated a whole section, section three to this about how to move into it. Don't jump into it, do it gradually and the whole process. I'll leave some space for us to talk about that, but I'd love to share the OS canvas, the operating system canvas. We won't have time to deep dive into all 12 domains, but let's start with purpose. Yeah. So uh, the thing with the OS canvas was just a way to create a mirror on the organization. And what we did is when we talked to organizations that were kind of known for their adaptivity and their humanity, we just said, hey, what's different about the way you work? What, you know, tell us what's, tell us what's unique here. And as they told us, oh, well, we meet differently, we decide differently, we steer differently, we pay differently. Um, we just pinned all that to the wall. And eventually these 12 spaces emerged as patterns that seem to be, you know, they're certainly not all the areas of operations. They're not every possible thing you can think of. That's, that's not our intent. But they were the 12 spaces that seemed to be the most in flux. And so if you're wondering where to start or where to look for ideas, these are good bets. Um, and that's, that's how we sort of put them forth. And purpose is the first one, which is to say, um, you know, what, how do we orient and steer? What are we here to do? Why are we doing it? And, and how, do, how can that drive our decision making? How can that drive our meaning making? 
How can that drive uh, people to our cause? Because, you know, we think about this work as kind of, you know, when you create something new, you're creating space to fill. You're, you're sort of laying out the, um, you know, the groundwork of, of uh, important work that needs to be done in the world and saying, hey, I, you know, I've lit a flame here. Does anybody want to come here and help me make it bigger? Um, and so the purpose work is pretty important. And it's important not just at the organizational level where it's often done, although it's sometimes done badly, um, but it's also really important at the team level, at the individual level, at the role level. Like, why does this role exist? Why does this team exist? And to talk about purpose in terms of outcomes, like, you know, what is your dent in the universe? What is true when you're done that was not true when you started? Um, and what is true if we have this role versus if we don't? And so we, you know, we often coach teams there. If that's missing, it's really hard to do anything else because we don't know why we're together. Um, if it is, if it's ready, then we can sort of move on to some of the other more, I think, interesting and nuanced spaces. Just one thing to call out on purpose before you move on to authority is don't just tick the box with your purpose statement. And you call it in particular here, the food stores, Whole Foods versus Kroger. This is just a stark contrast. And who knows now that uh, Whole Foods is part of Amazon, if this will play out forever. But for right now, it's pretty interesting. So Whole Foods in their declaration of interdependence, which is a really funny pun title, they basically said that their purpose is to nourish people in the planet. And so nourish people in the planet, it's not a lot of words, but it gives you a lot of information and it gives you a direction and it gives you some good questions to ask, like, what does it mean to nourish? Why the people and the planet? Or is there a tension between those two? What does that look like? So there's a lot of work you can go do that feels pretty meaningful based on that versus something like Kroger. So Kroger's stated mission is, and I quote, to be a leader in the distribution and merchandising of food, health, personal care, and related consumable products and services. Oh, I want to work there, man. About, I want to work yeah, there. Yeah, I know. Like, I know. <laughs> hey, hey, we got to finish the podcast before you go apply. <laughs> so what's screwed up about that is this idea that the basic kind of tactical reality of what we do is a purpose, because it's not. that What they described is not really a purpose. It's literally what they do. Like They move around and distribute food and consumables and products so that people have them. Yes, yes, yes. That's what you do. That's not why you do it. You know, I think Simon Sinek would, would not be pleased with, <laughs> with that as where they stop, right? You got to go a layer deeper and say, well, why do you do that? And what's funny is Whole Foods has an answer and Kroger doesn't. And when I, when I ask companies that are really bad at purpose why they do what they do, they often pull out the BS shareholder line. You know, oh, well, we do it for shareholders. Well, that's not a reason either. That's an outcome, right? If we're going to make money, we'll make money as a result of our purpose not as the purpose. You know, there's only one or two businesses in the world where their purpose is literally making money. And that's like somebody who's microsecond trading on the on Wall Street. Like, fine, that's fine. Your purpose is just literally to make money. But by the way, that's disgusting. So the second space on the board is authority, which is one of my favorites. And it's one of the real important kind of linchpins and all this stuff. And authority is basically how do we use and share power? How do we decide? And there's sort of two views of authority that I, I briefly touched on in the book, but I'm really talking and thinking about a lot more now. One is, is to start the company with the assumption that in order to do anything, you need permission, right? So basically, this is a permission economy. When we tell you what to do with a job description or with a, with a you know, specific uh, ask, now you have the right to do it. But otherwise, sit on your hands, right? This is a red light at the intersection, and we will tell you what we need you to do. But in that environment, what you have to do then is you have to think of everything, right? So you have to have, you know, a rule for everything, a policy for everything, and you have to make sure that you give permission out to just the right people at just the right time so that they can continue to pursue the purpose. The alternative view is actually anyone here can do anything unless we say that you can't. So it's the inverse approach to authority, which basically says, yeah, you are free, you are empowered to do anything you want unless we say you can't. You want to buy a million dollar factory? and we haven't said you can't, then you can, right? And so our job now is just to limit those few risk surfaces where things are not safe, not safe to try. And we find those, by the way, by playing the game. So as we make mistakes over and over again, as we encounter questions that we hold about who can do what, we can define those spaces, we can define those constraints. But then we don't over-constrain the system because we're only adding the minimum constraints that we need to realize our, our work and our, and our purpose. And so the authority space is really about figuring out, well, which approach are you going to use and why? 
How are you going to play that out across the whole system? How are you going to clarify the decision rights of each role, um, each team, et cetera? And so we talk a lot about this decision stack of, you know, at the bottom, uh, who can do, what can anyone decide, right? So can, you know, anyone in the company can, so at Ritz-Carlton, anyone can spend $200 to make a guest happy, that kind of thing, right? That's a decision right that everyone holds. Then there are decision rights that require advice. So uh, you can make this decision, but you have to go seek counsel from someone who's been there before or people who will be affected by the decision. Then you have decisions that can be only owned by certain roles, right? So this, you know, the VP of finance can make this decision about what tool we use. Um, then you have decisions that can be made by roles with advice. You can see the pattern here, um, right? So now it's only by the VP of finance, but only with advice from the VP of HR or whatever. Um, and then finally, you have decisions that are held by the team or held by a committee or held by a set of roles where we say, you know what, this is too big to make alone. So we're going to do this collectively and we'll use a, an integrative decision-making process to make sure that we do that safely and effectively and, and relatively quickly. But yeah, this, you know, if we're going to change the maternity policy at the ready, no one person's going to make that call. Too many, too many variables, too much of an of a important topic. So we're going to have multiple roles weigh in on that. But we have a way of making that decision that makes it happen and makes it happen you know, relatively smoothly. So that's, that's how I think about decisions and the authority space. And I think you know, just investing a little bit of time and energy there pays huge dividends uh, later on in operations because nobody's running around wondering who can decide what. You know, and it's now perfectly clear. And that's quite a gift. It's costly, this. I mean, you quantify the cost as well. But one thing I wanted to just link to last week's show was I mentioned, as you do in the book, you mentioned psychological safety. But one of the core elements of psychological safety is the ability and the allowance for mistakes. And you talk particularly about how the approach to mistakes for Gore-Tex and Basecamp. I'd love if you shared this. Yeah, yeah. Basecamp has this thing of don't scar on the first cut, which I love, which is this idea that you know, if you if you make a mistake or something goes wrong or we learn a lesson, often the immediate reaction from the one best way tribe is let's let's put that into the stone tablets, right? Let's make that a rule or a policy. You know, oh my God, somebody spent too much on a plane ticket. New rule: no one can spend more than five hundred dollars on a plane ticket ever. And what happens is that when you scar on the first cut like that, you build up all this org debt, right? Because there are going to be situations that break that rule. And so you've just reacted to one data point instead of many. And so the, the advice there is like, yeah, don't do that. Wait, wait to turn something into policy until you've seen the pattern unfold many times. And you're certain that it's really critical because you can actually afford most of these small mistakes, right? And so that's back to this definition of safe to try. We talk to teams a ton about what is safe to try or what is safe to fail because it's different for every team, for every context, for every quarter that you operate. There's going to be different bars of well, what is safe and what is unsafe. But if it's going to do harm that you can't recover from, then obviously we can't, we can't let that stand. But if it's going to do harm you can recover from, if it's like, oh, somebody ordered you know, the wrong uh, you know, knickknacks for the, for the conference with the logo on them backwards and they learned their lesson and we lost a thousand bucks, for most companies, that's an okay lesson. Like that's a lesson we can learn. And what's cool is that we build cap, we build capability when that happens, right? We only learn when we fail. Um, we, you know, we don't learn a lot when we succeed. We kind of just keep doing what we've been doing, but we learn and adapt when we fail. And so the big misconception for managers is most managers and leaders think their job is to get perfect execution out of the team to effectively head off all possible errors and failures and to execute perfectly. And that is just not the case in complexity. Sure, in, in the complicated, maybe that's your job. But in complex spaces, creative spaces, crowded categories, you know, competitive categories, our job is not to ensure perfect execution. Our job is to ensure continually growing capability. And continually growing capability means that people are getting better and better over time, not staying dependent on you to save their ass. And so there's a real distinction there and it comes out in the form of, yeah, we're gonna let some things go off the rails. We're gonna let some things happen that we don't think are perfect. We're gonna let some things out the door that we don't think will work. Because if they're right and we're wrong, then that's great. They've just proven that you know we're, we're not thinking about it straight. And if we were right and they were wrong, then they learn something. And then they bring that new capability and that new learning, which is now, deeply embodied, right? When you fail yourself on your own call, 
that embeds in you differently than when someone just says, don't do that, right? They bring that to the next party. And so this, this learning loop that starts to occur, you get, you know, really good, really fast, even though it's painful along the way as a perfectionist. And I always think of how similar management or leadership is to parenting. You know, totally. we know helicopter parenting doesn't work. So why don't we know that helicopter management or leadership doesn't work either in organizations? Yeah, it's funny because in some ways it is like parenting in the sense that like good parenting is about getting out of the way. Because really, at the end of the day, good parenting is about treating your child like a fully fledged human being, right? Like someone who like someone separate of you, who is in the world to lead their life and learn and grow and not connected to you or dependent on you in a way that's unhealthy. And I think sometimes we use the parent metaphor wrong at work where we say, oh, yeah, you know, I'm the parent and they're the kids. That's very paternalistic. I don't think that's helpful because we're all adults. You know, we're all adults here. The behavior is similar, but I almost shudder when we go to the parent metaphor. And I do it, too, because I'm like, I don't want to perpetuate that idea that somehow I know and you don't know. And so I'm going to teach you because maybe I do, but maybe I don't. And we'll find out together. You know, we're doing this uh, with each other. The next one then on the canvas is structure. And I thought to explain structure, the example you give of hair and its network structure or team of teams is an extremely good way of explaining how it works. Structure is an interesting one because there's so many possibilities, but decentralized structure tends to be the pattern among the companies that I study. And in the case of, of uh, that appliance manufacturer, they basically just said, hey, we're sick of having these big monolithic functions, you know, having marketing and HR and finance and customer service and all that totally separate. And so they blew them up. They had, you know, 60,000 people. They blew them up into much smaller autonomous teams that were multifunctional and had, you know, kind of everything they needed to deliver for the customer. I think they blew it up into 2,000 teams to start. Now I think it's up to 4,000 teams. Um, and they gave them, you know, full P&L responsibility and autonomy to go and, uh, and really just turned the whole model into a marketplace. You know, you think about like, why does the startup economy work? Well, because there's a whole bunch of players that are functionally integrated, trying to figure stuff out and work with each other and for each other. And um, that's how marketplaces work. That's what we love as, you know, we talk about loving capitalism, but then we run our businesses, not as free markets or free economies, but as, you know, fascist dictatorships. We talk about loving democracy, but we don't run our companies that way. So I think that that's what they've been experimenting with. And it's, it's still going, by the way, it's going great for them, but I think it's still a living, breathing experiment. We're not going to have time to go through the full 12 ASP domains of the OS, but I'd love to focus, as it is the innovation show, on innovation. And here you talk about how we learn and evolve the creation of something new and the evolution of what already exists. Yeah, I think innovation is an interesting one because it's very often thought about as a department, right? Like we, oh yeah, innovation's over there. That's where R&D is. That's where we're inventing the new and everything else is supposed to be just on run mode, right? And so, you know, and this happens obviously in the world of software, but also everywhere else too, where we just think, oh, you know, HR is not innovating. Uh, finance isn't innovating. They're just doing their job and innovation is in the corner. And I think what's interesting about this space is that when we look at the the companies that are truly evolutionary in their way of operating, that you know everything is an opportunity for for continuous improvement, right? So every every domain, every activity, every process, everything is a place where we could choose to do it differently. We could kind of move it forward. And so there's a lot of different you know ways to attack that. But I just find that um, that one simple mindset shift is important. And the organizations that learn really fast and, and really effectively, even, you know, even some that maybe are not the most people positive, um, they've got this figured out and, uh, and they, they have it embedded into the way they work. And so, so yeah, we often, we often look at the innovation space from the perspective of, you know, you have maybe a default, uh, a way of doing something that is the normal standard, um, but it's a default. It's not a requirement. It's not necessarily a policy that says you have to do it that way. It just says, if you don't know, and you're not wanting to structure an experiment around a different way, here's a good way. Here's a way that works well. And then if you want to try something different, or if you're a master at this and you've joined us to teach us, to help us, um, then of course you would do it a different way. And so I think that's a much healthier ecosystem than just everything's a standard and then innovation is a department. But instead to say, yeah, you know, every, every activity we do has its default. We have a default brand guideline. We have a default sales process. We have a default you know, project management approach, whatever it is. And 
Um, if you want to deviate from that, do it, but do it on purpose. You know, don't just deviate because you don't know or there's no clarity about what our way is. Deviate because you're choosing to undertake an experiment and you'll tell us when it's done. This worked better and I think it should be our new standard or our new default or it didn't work better and I was wrong and I learned something. And so I think that innovation uh, kind of approach can live can live everywhere, not just in an R&D context. And I love the line you shared here, and I'm going to use it to tee up something else, which is people are inherently creative, given the right conditions, trust them to sense opportunity and pursue it fluidly. A true culture of innovation is one where you can't tell the difference between operations and invention. And I love the way then you link that to nature, because you talked about complexity, you talked about ecosystems, mm-hmm. but you talked then also about how ants in nature deal with the conundrum of focusing on the present, but also looking and seeking into the future. Yeah, I love ants. And uh, whenever you study complex adaptive systems, you end up looking at them. And they're very simple creatures, obviously, but they do these amazing elaborate things together, which is a good, I think, uh, example for all of us. One of the things they do that's really interesting around quote-unquote innovation is when there is high information in the room with a colony of ants, like an apple in the middle of the room, Many of the ants will converge on the apple and start to eat it and bring it back and take care of the, you know, take care of the colony, but not all. There's a weird algorithm in in their wiring that says, you know, not every single one of us is going to go deploy against a sure thing for a variety of reasons, evolutionarily, I'm sure, as you can imagine. One reason would be if some of them hang back and keep randomly exploring the room and the space, they might find a strawberry. And so there's, there's an advantage there. And two, if they all go to the apple and it turns out the apple's poison, then they're all dead. So there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of wisdom in that, in that spread. And so often, you know, we talk about um, sure things and wild swings in the book, you know, definitely do, do what you know works and, and do your core business and all that, but don't make that the only thing you do in any domain, in any part of, in any part of your operations, because you'll miss out on strawberries and you might eat a poison apple. So there's always an opportunity to kind of keep some people flanking. And there's so many cool examples of this in, in business history. I mean, who would have thought that AWS was a good idea when Amazon was literally just a bookseller? And now it, in its own right, it would probably be one of the biggest businesses in the world. So there's a lot of stuff like that that happens in the innovation space that is unexpected, serendipitous, edge casey. And we need to deploy some part of our resources. And again, that depends on your risk profile. It could be 1%, could be 10%. But some part of our resources needs to go for those wild swings. I love the example you give here of Spotify. And you say, rather than being a megalithic ocean liner, it's more like a regatta of speedboats. This makes perfect sense in the ant analogy. Yeah, totally. I think that's their aspiration. When you can pull that off and still have coherence and still have alignment about like generally what are we trying to do, which I think Netflix defines as loosely coupled but tightly aligned, then you get really cool stuff. And so it's a balancing act to find that and hold that. But that is the work. And I said I'd leave room at the end for this. And literally, we've got a few few minutes here about the change. You dedicated a whole part to the change. So the OS comes in the middle and then the change, you call out very, very clearly, don't go and just come back after learning all this new knowledge and come back and go, we got to change everything. You go back very, very calmly, very measured, And you say, once you have the OS sorted out, there's a huge challenge with enabling the change to happen because oftentimes legacy organizations want a plan. They want the traffic lights and it's always about control for them. And you need to enable the roundabout instead. The weird paradox of this work is that to really inhabit these ideas that we talk about in the book, you do need a kind of a whole system commitment, right? Like you do need a moment where everybody says, all right, new principles we're going to organize around them. We're going to operate around them. And things like autonomy and transparency and consent are just the way we work. However, if you're starting from bureaucracy and you're a hugely scaled system, that's not something you can just mandate. There is a readiness that has to happen and an awareness and some immersion that has to happen to be comfortable with those ideas, to be familiar with those ideas. So there's a weird uh, you know, chicken or egg problem of like, if we do too little, nothing will change because the bureaucracy will just, you know, the antibodies of it will just eat the experiment um, and, they'll, and they'll ruin it. And if we do too much too quickly, we might um, kind of alienate and disrupt and break the system in a way that is not going to work for us. And so there's a dance that has to be done because you're changing a complex system of, you know, experimentation designed to create awareness and awakening 
that can then lead to you know bigger and bigger questions, which leads to bigger and bigger commitments in a pretty tight time window. So we we do the change through this thing we call looping, which is basically starting with tension. So what's stopping you from doing the best work of your life? Every team has an answer to that. So every team at every level can start to play with that question. And when they identify those tensions, like, hey, we have meetings to prepare for meetings, or we work in silos, or we don't trust each other, or we don't have the information we need, or we have too many emails, or whatever it is, um, then they can consider novel practice. So based on these new principles of autonomy and transparency and consent and others, um, what might a new way of doing that be? What's an alternative approach? And then we could try that for a while and see how it serves us and what we learn and what it awakens in us. So one of my favorite examples would be, you know, travel spend is too high. The old approach, the traffic light approach is travel freeze, right? Nobody can travel without approval from a vice president and we select a perfect partner and all this kind of, you know, constraint which by the way works, it definitely cuts travel spend, but there's some externalities there about how we feel and what opportunities we might miss out on. Um, the alternative might be like, hey, that, you know, that isn't working for us. That's, that's not making people feel like adults. Um, so we're going to try a different thing to address this tension. And the new thing is going to be just transparency around travel spend. So we're going to share our travel spend by team and by person in a feed uh, weekly for the next month and see how that feels and what that happen, you know, what that creates. And so, uh, you know, so that would be an experiment we would do. We'd for a month, we would flow that info and see what conversations does it provoke and what decisions does it provoke and do, you know, do, what happens to spend as we do that. And then at the end we can reflect and say, Hey, do we want to do more of that or less of that? And so you're steering, you know, into, into the adjacent possible basically by, um, you, you know, by doing something actual, real in the system. And often, by the way, it's great to do parallel experiments. So we want to improve innovation. Let's try three or four different things at the same time, you know, to teams that are similar in shape and size and, and direction and see what works best. You know, we're trying to figure things out in complexity. That means, you know, a lot of sensing and responding, a lot of testing and learning. Um, and at some point, the questions get bigger, the experiments get bolder, uh, we're doing, you know, radical things at a non-radical scale, and then suddenly we're ready to do them at a more radical scale. And, uh, and you know, the change that we're seeking to, to create starts to unfold in, in terms of decentralized structure and new roles and new identities and new ways of showing up. Um, and that's in the best case scenario. And, in, you know, in the worst case scenario, we improve some things, but we don't fully unshackle ourselves. Um, and, you know, we continue that process and that learning. So that's how we think about it rather than a Gantt chart and a top-down release of a PowerPoint every three years, because that stuff is just woefully not respectful of complexity. Brilliant, Aaron. And where can people find out more about yourself, your work, and the Ready itself? Well, there's more on the book at bravenewwork.com. There is a recently released podcast by the same name that can be found wherever you get your podcasts. And then the Ready, the firm that I work with that actually does this work in the world, is at theready.com. So those are all good places to start author of Brave New Work, Are You Ready to Reinvent Your Organization? Aaron Dignan, thank you for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me.